360 degrees. Hop high, 360 degrees. Hop high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. Hop high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Kuchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley. This week, we are taking it back to Halloween. We actually passed on the scary stories at the end of October to bring you election 2020 coverage. So tonight, we are going to bring you some stories that, for different reasons, are scary. On tonight's show, we'll hear a feature story marking 15 years since the execution of Stanley Tukey Williams at California State Penitentiary, San Quentin. We'll also hear an excerpt from Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, read by our own Miss M. Later, we'll hear a soundscape of killer drone reports as weaponized remote control aircraft launch deadly strikes on unsuspecting victims. And we'll close out the show with a report by graduate apprentice Janine Etter on the Black Cultural Zone outdoor market in Oakland. All that and more tonight on Full Circle. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin. And yes, tonight we will fall back to October in a sense as we will be bringing you some scary stories we had planned to bring around Halloween. We had actually passed on that, however, to bring you election 2020-related information. So tonight, we're going to bring back the scary stories with a slight twist. Tonight, we will leave the term scary story open to some broader interpretation other than ghosts and goblins. And to kick us off tonight, in case you haven't heard, we'll cover an issue of the death penalty. Scary, right? Well, as many of you may have heard, the Trump administration in its final days have moved to introduce other acceptable ways to terminate the life of other human beings. Now included as acceptable ways to execute people will be electrocution, a poison gas chamber, and a firing squad. And yes, this is scary. Well, one of the last people to be executed by the state of California was a man who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, not once, but six times. In prison, he turned his life around and truly redeemed himself. But his calls for clemency were left unanswered. Check out this story about Stanley Tukey Williams. As many of our regular KPFA listeners may remember, on December 13th in the year 2005, the state of California executed Stanley Tukey Williams at San Quentin Prison. Although convicted of multiple murders, Tukey, as he was known, claimed his innocence till the end, which some may argue helped seal his fate, because Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger said, quote, without an apology and atonement for these senseless and brutal killings, there can be no redemption, unquote. Others may argue differently, saying his work towards peace on the streets made him a threat to the prison industrial complex. KPFA did two separate live broadcasts from the gates of San Quentin. The first took place on November 19, 2005, at a rally on Tukey's behalf, dubbed Save the Peacemaker. Derived from the Protocol for Peace, a manual written by Tukey for street gangs to bring peace to their own streets and to stop the killings between rival gangs, Within this protocol for peace 
were chapters titled Gang Member Renunciation, Establishing and Maintaining Peace, and A Social Agenda for Peacekeepers. This was a manual that could be used worldwide. Let's listen as the rap giant Snoop Dogg speaks at the event. What's happening, y'all? What's happening? What's happening? Yeah. I know a lot of y'all know how I get out as far as with the music thing and movies and TV or whatnot, but today I'm out here on a, a whole different path. That's you know what I'm saying? Right. Now, what I want to say is that, you know, I come from Eastside Long Beach, home of where gangbanging is a, is an all-time must. And, and Crippin' is at an all-time high, and, and I was once a Crip gang member, and, you know, through my, my, my growing up in this music game, I learned how to better control myself and better control my attitude, and once I got a chance to, to see the movie Redemption, you know what I'm saying, starring Jamie Foxx, good thing he had me come down into the premiere to see it, because I knew nothing about it, once I seen that movie, it drew me more intact in with what I really needed to be doing, and that was contacting the kids and touching the people in the community, and... What was so crazy was that I didn't get this from somebody that was on the streets. I didn't get this from my father or an uncle. I got this from Stanley Tookie Williams, a brother that was locked up on death row. He inspired me to want to do something positive in my life and to go touch them kids and to really be in their face and not just send an autograph or act like I was going to show up, but really come to the place and show up and touch hands with the people. So I want to say that to you, Governor, that Stanley Tookie Williams is not just a regular old guy, he's an inspirator, he inspires me, and I know I inspire millions. So if he's inspiring me and I inspire millions, you add that up. That's over 100 million people that's inspired by what he do. The next month, December 13th, thousands gathered once again to hold a vigil through the long night of his execution, and KPFA was there. At that gathering, young people read excerpts from some of his children's books. Being a gangbanger is no fun. It's no fun being a gangbanger. Gangbangers are always looking behind their shoulders because they're afraid someone may hurt them. Gangbangers also worry about getting caught by the police for doing bad things like stealing. Many gangbangers are scared all the time, but they won't tell anyone because they want their homeboys to think they're down. It's truly no fun being a gangbanger. Friendship and power. We spend a lot of time with our friends. We tell our secrets to our friends. We share our lunch money and candy and clothes with our friends. We count on our friends to make us feel better when we're afraid or angry or sad. We really trust our friends. We listen to them. We worry about what they think of us. We want them to like us. For all these reasons, we give our friends a lot of power over us. That is why it's important for you to pick true friends to hang out with. We're your friends. An important lesson. Many of my homeboys have killed. It feels terrible. But I've learned something important. When you use violence to boss other kids around or to make what doesn't belong to you, you're really not proving that you're strong or tough. If you thought you were strong, you could tell your homeboys the truth about how you feel. You could admit to them when you're scared. You could say no to violence. And you would not let any homeboy push you into doing something that you know is wrong. Speaking with Dana Gramby on Full Circle in 2002, this is what Tukey had to say about his books. The books in itself is, I consider it to be more of a caveat, uh, something to warn children about, uh, because I've experienced this madness and I know what they're heading for if they end up uh, traveling down the path that I have. Throughout those books, I warn them about gangs, I warn them about uh, drugs, weapons, and uh, things of that nature. And my main objective is for them to obtain an education. Because once they start going to a juvenile hall, they'll end up being uh, in CYA, then prison, then before they know it, they'll end up on death row, like a lot of these youngsters are. So it's more of a warning that this isn't the type of life they want to experience. Actually, it is no life being in prison. As the night wore on, the waiting to hear the news went well after the 12.01 scheduled execution time. Friends, I know you're anxious to get news. We all are. We don't know what's going on. We, are wait we can't find out. We are waiting to get answers. The process sometimes, this is, I'm sorry, this is very sad and grim. It can take 10, 15, 20 minutes 
for an execution to be completed. So please take a deep breath. Please be patient. We may not find out for another 15 or 20 minutes what's going on. And so we have to be calm and we have to be reflective and we have to listen to Stan's words. As soon as we know anything, we will let you know. I'm Greg Bridges along with Amelia Gonzalez and we are coming to you live from the gates of San Quentin. Well, right now we're in the company of thousands of people, thousands who are waiting to hear word of the execution of Stanley Tookie Williams. The uh, execution was scheduled for a minute after midnight, and we are now in the 27th minute of this new day. Finally, the word came from KPFA's Max Pringle reporting from inside the prison. The uh, state of California has indeed executed Stanley Atuki Williams. Uh, the time unofficial is 12.35 Pacific time. Uh, we're awaiting uh, a final word from the warden, Steve Aronofsky, to give us the uh, final statement of Stanley Atuki Williams, if, there, if indeed there was one. Uh, uh, the lethal injection was administered a little bit past midnight, and uh, there were 39 witnesses to the execution, five of whom were invitees of Williams, five were family members of the four people Williams was convicted of slaying in 1981. The rest were prison officials and media. Williams' remains will be taken to the Marin County Coroner's Office, where an unnamed family member will claim them, along with his possessions. Again, 51-year-old Stanley Tukey Williams, who gained international notoriety for a prison conversion, gang leader to peacemaker, is now dead. San Quentin State Prison, I'm Max Pringle. Well, thank you, Max Pringle. Tukey Williams was the 12th man put to death by California since capital punishment was revived in 1992 after a quarter-century hiatus, followed by Clarence Ray Allen, a 76-year-old Choctaw Indian sick with diabetes. And finally, the killings were ground to a halt on February 21, 2006, when the prison could not find no doctor willing to operate the instruments of death to end the life of Michael Morales, and the execution was stayed over a constitutional challenge. Some say if Williams was never locked up, would he have had his great transformation into redemption, or would he be another victim of the streets? That will be for you to decide. I leave you lastly with these words from Tukey, stating why he should be granted clemency and what he would do if he was. First and foremost, I would have to say that I am innocent. I've been saying that from the incipient of my uh, arrest. And uh, secondly, I will say if I'm uh, allowed to live, uh, if Governor uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, grants me a clemency or an indefinite stay, uh, it will also enable me to uh, continue to disseminate my uh, positive message to youth and adults. And... Last but not least, uh, a clemency would, in a sense, uh, allow me to inevitably uh, prove my innocence. And also, I might say that uh, I won't be just resting on my laws or anything like that. Just recently, I had the opportunity to meet vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, face to face, with the president and CEO of the uh, NAACP, Bruce Gordon. And what emanated uh, from that particular meeting was a partnership. And uh, what that entails is that we're going to create a violence prevention uh, curriculum for at-risk youth uh, throughout America and abroad. So my life uh, will not just be sitting uh, inertia in a prison cell. I will actually be, as I'm doing now, but on a higher scale, I'll be able to reach uh, not just thousands, but hopefully millions of youth and help uh, to reverse this cycle of madness. Reverse the cycle of madness. That was the voice of six-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Stanley Tukey Williams, 
from an interview with KPFK's Jasmine Kanick speaking before his execution December 2005. Before we go, let's not forget, although Tukey claims his innocence, there are still victims in his case. Let's not forget to remember all the victims of gang violence and not only hope for a day when this violence will cease, but work towards that end whenever we can. For Full Circle, this is Freewill and Franklin. And I want to say of the brother that he touched me deeply. I never met him before. I, I didn't know of his past life, but I learned of him that the man that I met at San Quentin is as far removed from the man that was Stan Tukey Williams, co-founder of the Crips, as the far planet Pluto, which is 4,600,000,000 miles from the Earth. That is as far away from what he was as what he is. Yes, check it. Yo, blue rage, black man in a cage in San Quentin. Animal in the jungle language used against a brown man, against a black man. We got your back stand. React to the fact cause the Supreme Court let it stand. Raise up the appellate hand. Yell it if you smell it, man. Tookie ain't no rookie. The cookie jaws gotta raise his hand. First we gotta save your life. Then we gotta get you out. If we gotta wait you out, we may have to break you out. Black and born, captive in the USA. Raised in the wicked game. People play struggle and pain. It's part of the insane ways of the ghetto U.S. death row But where the spirit flow Only the Lord knows So we rhyming for freedom and justice To get the peacemaker off death row It's a broad generation who need him to keep writing Tukey books cause they need An animal them. in his habitat rage The lion cage, the court sway, the DA Use metaphors this way, soul snatches Be the prophets of rage, we on the front line And on the front page with who says I don't think so, so as the people go about Blind in their everyday lives Set up by those everyday lives Hope that they can drop a lie in a line As we remorse through the course of time And intercourse with the source of life How can a person believe in the system, believe in the midst of the angst, making their decisions from high ranks, jeopardizing a life when anybody can buy faith? The death date is set as December the 13th. The mission is to execute the protocol for peace. The mission is to extinguish any brother, helping deflect the violence in the system so the victims took you will. Yo, so we can paint the picture to change it, remake the scripture so people that ain't conflicted could listen and pay attention. But it's deeper than us, it's deeper than waiting shots, it's deeper than Jamie Foxx. We stuck in the same spot. The numbers 916-445-2841 Do me a favor, call Governor Schwarzenegger and let him know This rose in the concrete deserves to grow Living with hate in their minds Some of them even think that they have the right To be faking the role of the most high When it comes to taking a black man's life I wonder if they think twice Would they rather us die than leave us alive In a four by nine foot cell for life How do they justify your homicide As a punishment for homicide Retaliation's just an eye for an eye, right? So who are the thugs now that the powers change hands? Any official who doesn't stand against them Killing of this man From Damn. the hose of y'all ships Slave The crack ships. of y'all whips Unloading to y'all clips For Vietnam and Iraq trips Blacks been dying from the lying out of y'all lips right. So calling on all blood in all crips, soon revolution gon' pop. Gonna get this Ku Klux Klan, black man, murder don't stop. Off top, we gon' ride by the millions. Now every ex-slave say, save Stan Tookie Williams. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA. That was free from the album Redemption, Hip Hop United for Tukey Williams. The artists in that song were Soul Snatchers with a Z, 
The Frontline, Bay Area artist Rico Pabon, and Cam. That's K-A-M. That album was put out as a compilation in the lead-up to the execution of Tukey Williams to help raise awareness of his case and to urge government officials and regular people to take action to try and stop the execution and to seek a pardon or clemency from then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. As we all know, that didn't happen and Tukey was executed. Tonight we are featuring scary stories, and before that music break, we heard a feature story about Stanley Tukey Williams, who, like I mentioned, was executed by the state of California 15 years ago next week. That would be December 13th, 2005. Also, something scary to think about is not only has the Trump administration brought back death by electrocution, the gas chamber, and the firing squad, he is also moving to execute five federal prisoners before Inauguration Day. One of them is a woman. This is basically a slap in the face to the incoming Biden administration, who has publicly vowed to eliminate the federal death penalty and will supposedly urge states to follow along. I guess we will just have to wait and see what's happening in the coming weeks. The next ex execution is scheduled for next week. That's Brandon Bernard on December 10th. Then Alfred Bourgeois, December 11th. So let's keep our eyes out for any movement to stop these executions. Also, there was some great reporting on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! earlier this week concerning Trump's moves on the manners of execution and his rushed schedule of executions. You can find those at democracynow.org and I will post a link to those stories on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. So let's move on. Again, we have another scary story. This time, another contribution from First Voice Apprentice co-director, Miss M. Here she reads from Invisible Man, a novel by Ralph Ellison. Invisible Man addresses many of the social and intellectual issues faced by African Americans in the early 20th century, including issues of individuality and personal identity. Here is Miss M. This story is particularly scary, given that it was written some 70-plus years ago. It's from the novel Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. The beginning narration is from Chapter 1, and the section after the musical interlude is from the final chapter. In this 21st century, will people of color, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, succeed in being visible? It goes a long way back, some 20 years. All my life I had been looking for something, and everywhere I turned, someone tried to tell me what it was. I accepted their answers, too, though they were often in contradiction and even self-contradictory. I was naive. I was looking for myself and asking everyone except myself questions which I and only I could answer. It took me a long time and much painful boomeranging of my expectations to achieve a realization everyone else appears to have been born with, that I am nobody but myself. But first I had to discover that I am an invisible man. And yet I am no freak of nature, nor of history. I was in the cards, other things having been equal or unequal, 85 years ago. I am not ashamed of my grandparents for having been slaves. I am only ashamed of myself for having at one time been ashamed. About 85 years ago they were told that they were free, united with others of our country in everything pertaining to the common good and in everything social, separate like fingers of the hand. And they believed it. They exulted in it. They stayed in their place, worked hard, and brought up my father to do the same. But my grandfather is the one. He is an odd old guy, my grandfather, and I am told I take after him. It was he who caused the trouble. On his deathbed he called my father to him and said, Son, after I'm gone, 
I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you, but our life is a war, and I've been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country ever since I give up my gun back in the Reconstruction. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction. Let them swallow you till they vomit or bust wide open. They thought the old man had gone out of his mind. He had been the meekest of men. The younger children were rushed from the room. The shades were drawn, and the flame of the lamp turned so low that it sputtered on the wick like the old man's breathing. Learn it to the young'uns, he whispered fiercely. Then he died. But my folks were more alarmed over his last words than over his dying. It was as though he had not died at all. His words caused so much anxiety. I was warned emphatically to forget what he had said, and indeed this was the first time it had been mentioned outside the family circle. It had a tremendous effect upon me, however. I could never be sure of what he meant. Grandfather had been a quiet old man, who had never made any trouble, yet on his deathbed he had called himself a traitor and a spy, and he had spoken of his meekness as a dangerous activity. It became a constant puzzle which lay unanswered in the back of my mind, and whenever things went well for me, I remembered my grandfather and felt guilty and uncomfortable. It was as though I was carrying out his advice in spite of myself. And to make it worse, everyone loved me for it. I was praised by the most lily-white men of the town. I was considered an example of desirable conduct, just as my grandfather had been. And what puzzled me was that the old man had defined it as treachery. When I was praised for my conduct, I felt a guilt that in some way I was doing something that was really against the wishes of white folks, that if they had understood, they would have desired me to act just the opposite, that I should have been sulky and mean, and that that really would have been what they wanted, even though they were fooled and thought they wanted me to act as I did. It made me afraid that some day they would look upon me as a traitor, and I would be lost. Still, I was more afraid to act any other way, because they didn't like that at all. The old man's words were like a curse. On my graduation day, I delivered an oration in which I showed that humility was the secret, indeed the very essence of progress. Not that I believe this. How could I? Remembering my grandfather, I only believed that it worked. So why do I write, torturing myself to put it down? Because in spite of myself I've learned some things. Without the possibility of action, all knowledge comes to one labeled file and forget and I can neither file nor forget. Nor will certain ideas forget me. They keep filing away at my lethargy, my complacency. Why should I be the one to dream this nightmare? Why should I be dedicated to set aside, yes, if not at least to tell a few people about it? There seems to be no escape. Here I've set out to throw my anger into the world's face, but now that I've tried to put it all down, the old fascination with playing a role returns, and I'm drawn upward again, so that even before I finish, I've failed. Maybe my anger is too heavy. Perhaps I've been a talker, I've used too many words. But I've failed. The very act of trying to put it all down has confused me and negated some of the anger and some of the bitterness. So it is now that I denounce and defend, or feel prepared to defend. I condemn and affirm, say no, say yes, say yes, and say no. I denounce because though implicated and partially responsible, 
I have been hurt to the point of abysmal pain, hurt to the point of invisibility, and I defend because in spite of all I find that I love. In order to get some of it down, I have to love. I sell you no phony forgiveness. I'm a desperate man. But too much of your life will be lost. It's meaning loss, unless you approach it as much through love as through hate. All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA. Thank you, Miss M, for the reading of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Invisible Man, like I mentioned, addresses many of the social and intellectual issues faced by African Americans in the early 20th century, including issues of individuality and personal identity. It was also the winner of the U.S. National Book Award for Fiction in 1953. It was later in 1998 ranked 19th on the Modern Library's list of the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. Again, thank you for that reading, Miss M. Uh, moving on, we'll hear another scary story. This one, a soundscape of terror and news reports of drone strikes. Started in the Bush Jr. era was the use of weaponized drones. Drones, or remotely piloted aerial vehicles as they are sometimes referred to, are aircraft that are piloted by remote control, meaning there is no pilot on board the aircraft. Therefore, no risk to American lives. These aircraft are often piloted from bases in the United States, but flying missions over places like Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and other countries we are not officially at war with. What is more scary than at any time a missile can come from out of the sky and blow people apart? Let's check out this sound collage that covers some of the news of the terror drones inflicted during the Obama administration. I grew up after, in the ruins, starving, hiding from HKs. HKs? Hunter killers. Patrol machines built in automated factories. U.S. drone attack in Pakistan. The strike hit a village in the Pakistani region of northern Waziristan. The New York Times, meanwhile, has revealed the private military firm, formerly known as Blackwater, has played a major role in the U.S. drone attack program. The CIA has used Blackwater contractors to assemble and load missiles and bombs on remotely piloted predator aircraft. The CIA drone attacks have targeted Al-Qaeda and Taliban leaders, but the vast majority of its casualties have been civilian. But the airstrikes cause a major problem for the U.S.'s ally in the war on terror. Widespread anger at the government and the U.S. The new U.S. government should change U.S. policy, this man says. Obama Hussein is a Muslim name. He should think about the Muslims. As I said when I announced this strategy, there will be more difficult days ahead. President Obama has authorized 28 drone strikes since he uh, took office. That's more than President Bush had done at this point. There have been dozens of drone strikes in the past year that have targeted Pakistani and foreign militants, but also killed hundreds of civilians. Since 2006, we've killed 14 senior Al-Qaeda leaders using drone strikes. In the same time period, we've killed 700 Pakistani civilians in the same area. 700 Pakistani civilians, the drone strikes are here deeply aggravating the population. 700 Pakistani civilians. Now you've got these airplanes that are capable not only of providing uh, the pictures, the full motion video that you need, 
but now they're also capable of taking out targets where there may not be any other assets available. Hunter killers. Drone attacks. Pose the U.S. drone attacks. Drone strikes. Pose the U.S. drone attacks. You're going to see a lot of outrage towards these drone attacks. Did, 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 did you see the frightened ones? Did, 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 did you hear the falling bugs? Did, 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 did you ever wonder why we had to run for shelter when the promise of a brave new world unfell beneath the clear blue sky? It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead. The Obama administration. Watch these two men in Iraq. They have no idea they're being hunted by a deadly UAV. Hunter killers. It is following their every move, even recording them fire their weapons. They have no idea their insurgent activities have been spotted and no idea the UAV operator thousands of miles away is about to fire a missile at them. It's what makes UAVs or drones a must-have for the US military. This is Creech Air Force Base where drone pilots remotely fly missions over Iraq and Afghanistan. Creech Air Force Base, Nevada. They live with their families in Las Vegas. They drive out and drop the kids off at school, drive out in the morning, fly their missions, drop their bombs. They can go home and have dinner with their family in the evening. Drone attacks is not a Pakistani problem. It's an American problem because drone attacks are creating more hatred against United States of America in Pakistan than the Pakistan army. So these drone attacks are also the violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. And uh, nobody can justify the violation of international law in the name of war against terror. Because this kind of war is creating more terror and more hatred not only against the Pakistani armed forces but also against United States of America. In the aftermath of last night's aerial attack, Pakistan learned some things don't change. President Obama is continuing the Bush administration's policy of an expanded use of drones in Pakistan's tribal areas. The new administration's policy seems clear. The drone attacks will continue. Unmanned technology is here to stay. Wars will never be the same again. If ever there's a moment to borrow a line from a science fiction movie, now is it. Mankind is boldly and irreversibly going where man has never been before, towards an uncharted era of warfare. We're looking at a future where we can program unmanned aerial vehicles to operate autonomously and within groups among themselves, with weapons or without weapons. As I said when I announced this strategy, there will be more difficult days ahead. So this is not only a war worth fighting, this is a war of necessity. This is not a war of choice. Defense Secretary Robert Gates announced he would seek a more than 100% increase in funding for the drones. U.S. drone attacks in Pakistan are backfiring. The unmanned drone airplanes take off from secret runways, seek out suspected terrorists, and with CIA employees at the remote controls, fire missiles to blow them up. Battle drones! You have proved yourself an unstoppable core of brutal killing machines. The most destructive band of merciless misfits ever assembled. Dismissed.
Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA and KPFA.org. That was the title track to a film of the same name, National Bird. It was performed by Soleil and DJ Payne One. And the film National Bird is a documentary film by Sonia Kennenbeck, and it follows three whistleblowers from the U.S. drone program. Many of our regular listeners will remember we featured the film National Bird during a couple of the fun drives, and we also spoke with the filmmaker Sonia Kennenbeck on the show. National Bird is now available on Prime Video, and I urge you all to check it out and see what the drone program is doing to the health and well-being of young American soldiers that operate these killing machines. You will also see the terror the drone program afflicts on our brothers and sisters overseas. Something else scary about the drone program is that their use has increased and become even more secretive under the Trump administration. Also scary is the new weapons that are being delivered by these aircraft. You all may remember the January 3rd high-profile assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. He was taken out in a drone strike. One interesting thing is that the weapon of choice for his assassination was the Hellfire R9X. This weapon uses not an explosive, but an array of metal blades that deploy from the sides of the missile just before impact. These blades will slice through cars and basically slice the occupants to death and destroying them with kinetic energy. Check out an article from The Hill about this unique weapon in a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Okay, now on to our last scary story of the night and the fight to defeat the beast of gentrification. What is more scary than Oakland without black people who have been the source of the unique Oakland culture? Here is KPFA producer Janine Etter and the Oakland Black Cultural Zone Outdoor Market. You're listening to Full Circle. I'm Janine Etter. The Black Cultural Zone Collaborative works with a coalition of residents, government agencies, churches, and grassroots organizing groups to help keep black folks in East Oakland. For more on the Black Cultural Zone organization. We are joined by Aliyah Romero, project coordinator for the Black Cultural Zone. 
So, Aaliyah Romero, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so talk about the Black Cultural Zone. First, what is it? Right. So the Black Cultural Zone is basically a collaborative between over 20 partners, all are Black-led, and we all kind of work towards the same common goal, which is basically just, you know, supporting the Black community within East Oakland and also, you know, recognizing that Oakland is a diverse community. So how can we all work together to, you know, uplift East Oakland? And specifically, why why is the focus East Oakland? So specifically East Oakland, um, I know that East Side Arts Alliance was the one who created the whole the idea for the Black Cultural Zone, just recognizing that East Oakland has been largely ignored. So folks decided to, you know, come together, congregate and see, you know, what these leaders could do in order to try to address the issues that they felt weren't being addressed. It's a historically, you know, diverse community. Lots of, you know, black and brown folks live here. Um, Asian folks, uh, API, it largely has this notion of Asian Pacific Islander. Yes, Mm -hmm. correct. So just trying to combat a lot of the negative connotations that are associated with the neighborhood and just working together in order to do that. And so talk a little bit more about the history of how the Black Cultural Zone came to be. You talked about Eastside Arts Alliance being connected to it. Right. So the idea was conceived in 2014 um, just to kind of address, as I mentioned, the decades of just disinvestment and uninterest in uh, disinterest in East Oakland, as well as the more recent displacement of a lot of our you know, black and brown folks as a result of gentrification. Um, but we also wanted to center black arts and culture within the whole community development framework. Um, but yeah, the collaborative was formed by Eastside Arts Alliance and a few other nonprofit organizations in East Oakland. Um, and we kind of designate the Black Cultural Zone as the 50 square blocks from High Street uh, to the San Leandro border. And, you know, we're focused on, you know, art activism as well as, you know, ensuring an utmost quality of life, how to build a strong economy placekeeping, so anti-displacement efforts, Um, just, you know, every facet that, you know, impacts the community. And what does gentrification look like in East Oakland? I feel like the the focus, when we talk about Oakland, is more focused on West Oakland. Um, Right. But what does it look like in East? I would say that just, you know, seeing a lot of, you know, local Black businesses being Um, shut down or removed or just being removed and uh, replaced by larger enterprises. Um, So a lot of those mom and pop shops are no longer there. And especially with COVID right now, uh, they're being impacted, you know, very hard just with just the lack of support in general. What are the programs and events that you offer? Right. So right now, one of our main ones is the Coma Market. Um, So the holiday market that's on Sunday is kind of a spinoff of our regular Acoma Outdoor Market. Um, And that's a certified farmer's market that really tries to highlight, you know, local, small, black and brown um, led businesses and organizations. Um, But besides that, you know, we also, um, I mean, before kind of the restrictions were uh, made a bit stricter we had liberation park which is the lot where we hold our market as a venue so we had you know some folks come out to do dance workshops and we had um you know someone come over to do turkey giveaways and then besides that we're also doing the whole art for the movement initiative which is basically a collaboration between You know, the Oakland Museum of California, Oakland Art Murmur, RBA, um, Spirit Works, the Black Cultural Zone. And we're just trying to see how we can preserve, you know, the art that 
was created in downtown Oakland as a result of, you know, the BLM protests, um, just to see what we can do, because, you know, these are historic pieces from a historic point in time, and we don't want them to just get thrown away and forgotten, or even, you know, show up in some high-end restaurant with no recognition for who the artist was. Um, So we're trying to work together to see what we can do to make sure that, you know, the art is not only preserved, but also that the artists are recognized for, you know, what they did. And how are you handling um, your events during the pandemic or, or events that you that you hold? Right. So at every um, Acoma market, you know, we do temperature checks before allowing entry into the market. Um, we're making sure that masks are being properly worn at all times. And we're limiting, you know, how many folks can enter the market at any given time just to, you know, ensure that safe physical distancing is being kept. Um, And we also have, you know, hand sanitizer, hand washing stations throughout um, and really encouraging folks to, you know, try to uh, be very aware of these precautions that we're taking, you know, doing every so often announcements, just reminding folks, hey, Make sure to keep, leave a gap of at least six feet between you and folks who are not within your party. Make sure you're washing your hands constantly and just being uh, cognizant of uh, the precautions that we're taking. If you could talk more about the, there's also the Black Cultural Zone hub site. What is that? Right. So basically right now, Liberation Park is the Black Cultural Zone hub. Um, Right now we're using, we're licensing it from the city, but our goal is to, you know, create a, it's like a mixed site. So it'd be, you know, housing and also a site for, you know, a lot of our, you know, black creatives to come and maybe have a storefront. So like a mixed site that would try to provide affordable housing while also giving folks a space, um, to have a storefront uh, at a low cost or even, you know, the same folks that, you know, are working downstairs selling jewelry, they're able to live upstairs and afford to stay within their community. And where is this location? So the goal would be for it to be at where Liberation Park is. So that's at the corner of 73rd and Foothill. Um, Right now, it's just kind of a vision, but we're hoping that we'll get it started. And as a Black Cultural Zone, what are the needs that you all would say that the Black community in East Oakland needs um, that oftentimes get overlooked? That's a great question. I would say just one large issue is just addressing um, affordable housing and just the upsurge in, um, you know, unhoused, you know, folks, you know, we, <clears throat> I would say that a lot of our folks are, you know, because of these gentrification efforts are being pushed out of their homes and often, you know, their homes that they've had for generations and there's no support to even give them a new place afterwards. So just seeing how um, we can not only prevent folks from ge- even getting pushed out of their home, I mean, it's a ridiculous concept, but um helping the ones who have already been unfortunately pushed out. What can we do in order to support them? And then another thing is just, you know, the social determinants of health and racial health disparities that are prevalent within the community. Um, If you look at how COVID-19 affects Oakland, even just at a zip code level, you would see that, you know, East Oakland, Deep East Oakland and Fruitvale, they're all, you know, much more heavily impacted by COVID in terms of, you know, COVID rates and COVID deaths than, um, you know, a lot of the more West Oakland zip codes. So looking at how we can address these social determinants of health and try to eliminate these racial health disparities is something that I think really needs to be um, focused on and that the Black Cultural Zone is also trying to see how we can address these factors. And what kind of support are you getting from the city of Oakland? Right. That's a great question. Um, 
I believe that they've provided us with funding. I also know that, you know, one of our sponsors for the coma market is council member Lauren Taylor. So he helps us out a lot with that. And, you know, he also saw this as an opportunity to support the, you know, the black and brown community of East Oakland um, through the market. And what events um, do you have coming up for the holiday season? So this Sunday we have our Acoma Holiday Market, which will be at the lot on from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. with uh, Spirit Works facilitating outdoor yoga beforehand. Um, and is this every Sunday we'll, or? No, it's not every Sunday. Um, okay. So we had a soft lunch in September and throughout September and October. It was every Sunday. But then November, December and January will be first Sundays. Um, we're still a bit tentative on the January date just because we're unsure if, you know, there might be heightened restrictions moving forward mm-hmm. in terms of COVID. Um, but we have the goal of, you know, maybe hopefully by February, which is, you know, Black History Month, that it can return to that, you know, weekly Sunday basis. Um, but we're just trying to be cognizant of, you know, the weather and also COVID restrictions, which is why we've kind of dialed back a bit in frequency. Okay. So... Ongoing, you have the Acoma Market, which will still be going up through the holidays. Yeah, it's just this Sunday. Oh, this Sunday is the last one until next year. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That's um, well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I guess I could add that we're also working with a couple of uh, local CBOs, and we kind of created this initiative called the People's Health Mobile. Um, this was born from, you know, the city of Oakland has the COVID-19 racial disparities task force. And within that, they have the outreach, outreach working group. Um, so the black cultural zone came in and created a COVID communications coordination team, which then created a council. So this council birthed the people's health mobile, which is basically, we have an RV and then we're also working with boss to see if we can use their RV Um, to go into areas that are, you know, priority areas in terms of COVID and seeing how we can work as a team to help them out, Um, you know, providing hot meals, providing PPE, providing COVID resources, also working with like CalPEP and HEPPAC to see how they can, you know, help us with, you know, uh, tying how, you know, COVID and safe sex are hand in hand, you know, we have to remind folks that um, we need to be cautious because the rate in STDs has gone up dramatically um, during COVID. So just trying to look at it from a broad perspective and really address all the factors while going into those areas that feel ignored in terms of COVID outreach right now. Well, Aaliyah Romero, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And thank you for having me. Yes. We've been speaking with Aaliyah Romero, project coordinator for the Black Cultural Zone. You're listening to Full Circle. I'm Janine Etter. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after this show for pictures, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. Shout out to contributing producers tonight, Miss M and Janine Etter. The Full Circle crew is executive producer, Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And I have been your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin. I am also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening tonight. And everyone, please remember to protect your health and your humanity. And stay tuned. Up next on KPFA is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone.